Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rilo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we're going back to our previous discussion about early stage treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. And so last time we had a great discussion. The last couple of weeks, listeners, you guys have been hearing about the important role that radiation um, plays in the treatment of early stage lung cancer. And so we just want to round out this discussion now with this week's episode. So we're, we're excited to bring this to you. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. It's going to end our discussion of early stage lung cancer, and it really builds upon the things we talked about in the last few episodes. It, it, it touches on important radiation principles, and it also touches on the, the earlier episodes we had describing how to treat early stage lung cancer with a surgery upfront scenario. Yes, couldn't have come at a better time for me, too. I'm studying for boards right now, so this has been a great review for me. And it really has helped clarify a lot of things for me as well, so boards are not anywhere in the near future for me, but it's good to, to learn it now as well. Really quickly though, guys, before we roll the episode, I did want to introduce our listeners to a new member of the Fellow on Call team. Madeline Fitzpatrick is someone that recently joined our team as our new engagement manager and content analyst. And so we welcome Madeline to the team. She's already really hit the ground running and done a lot of great things for us behind the scenes. And so kudos to her and welcome Madeline to the fellow on call family. Super excited to have her on board. She's just an amazing asset to have. Yeah. And Rula has some great resonance and she's just a perfect example of that. Indeed. Well, guys, let's go ahead and move on to the show. Guys, I think we had in our previous episodes a really fantastic discussion about non-small cell lung cancer. And, you know, uh, I don't know about you, and actually you guys already know all this stuff anyway, but for me it did help clarify a lot of information because as Vivek pointed out um, in our last episode we talked about treatments, the whole mantra in lung cancer seems to be, well, if this is what our standard of care is, I think we can do better. And so, you know, it, it just it just felt like when I was learning this the first time, it was just trial after trial, and I had a really hard time of conceptualizing how all of this was employed uh, lo- logistically um, and and algorithmically. And I and I think that you guys helped clarify a lot of it. So um, I'm I'm excited to kind of round out this discussion with you all today. Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, Ronick, do you want to kick us off with the case? Yeah, absolutely. So listeners, we have a 65-year-old male that was found to have a 5.5 centimeter peripheral right middle lobe lung adenocarcinoma. He had a medial sinal staging with EBUS that was consistent with an N2 disease, given that he had a positive station 4R and 7 lymph node. And then he had a brain MRI and a PET CT as part of his diagnostic workup that were negative for evidence of metastatic disease. So guys, maybe we can use this case as a recap just to remind everybody about, you know, how we approach this this uh, this situation. Yeah, and you know, that first decision point is always going to be, are you going to get surgery up front or no surgery up front? Just review those criteria. If the tumor is invading other structures, so like the chest wall or into the mediastinum, that's, that's a no-go. You can't operate on that. 
if there's any central lymph node involvement, so those are the single-digit lymph nodes, that's a, a no for upfront surgery. And if the tumor is oversized, it's larger than seven centimeters, you're you're basically stuck with with no upfront surgery there either. And these are all looking at sort of risk that the tumor has already spread beyond its original site and risk for there being sort of systemic involvement in disease or just technical difficulty in removing it. And and that's the biggest thing in this case. So we had this patient, and just to recap something again, repetition is key. There was a positive 4R and uh, station 7 lymph nodes. And so remember, single-digit lymph nodes, central lymph nodes, like Dan had talked about just, just a second ago, that's a no-go for surgery up front in general. We're giving you in-general statements here. And the big thing with that, I just wanted to mention the R means on the right. So it was a station 4 lymph node on the right. If it was 4L, that would be a contralateral lymph node on the left if we had this right middle lobe mass. And that would change the way we think about the patient. So in this case, we have a central lymph node that's involved. So the seven station lymph node. So so what do we do? What do we do in a situation like this, though? So I like to think about this in a pretty simple way. And for the cases that we can't do surgery up front for the criteria that we've listed here from the fellow on call, the big thing is after that, you have two options. Option number one, you just go ahead and do definitive concurrent chemotherapy with radiation to treat their cancer with the goal of having a durable response and overall goal of cure. And that is a reasonable option to do. So one route is I'm going to definitively treat this, no surgery at all, just a combination of chemotherapy and radiation done concurrently. And Dr. Osmondson's discussion in the last episode really discussed some of the nuance behind this topic. The second option is that you do some sort of an induction approach. And the idea here is that, you know, we had these patients who have central lymph node involvement. They're at really high risk for having disease outside of the chest and having relapse and ultimately metastatic disease down the line. So one thing you definitely want to do is get some form of chemotherapy in them. That's, that's a must. And one of the ideas was, was what if we can do this upfront or an induction approach? So before surgery, what if we gave these patients chemotherapy? Do they do better? The second idea was, well, what if we give them a combination of chemotherapy and radiation? Do they do even better than, than just chemotherapy alone? And that's the idea behind an induction approach is that you're going to eradicate any microscopic disease that's already left the chest that may have jumped on the lymph node highway and left. So you're going to kill all of that. And you're also going to get improved local control, possibly shrinkage of the tumor. And the idea behind adding radiation, if you choose to do that, is that you could also potentially downstage the tumor and downstage the lymph nodes to make the patient have a much better chance of having a good surgical resection. So that's a lot of talking, but, but bottom line is option one, definitive con concurrent chemoradiation. Option number two is induction, either chemotherapy alone or concurrent chemotherapy and radiation followed by surgery. So those are your two big buckets. And remember, these decisions aren't being made in a vacuum either. This is something that usually will be a big discussion between a bunch of different specialties at a, at a multidisciplinary tumor board. So don't, don't feel like you have to make this call yourself if you're treating a lung cancer patient. 
so, so that's that's really really helpful, guys. And so again, I, I love the idea of of you know if surgery is the best option that we got, and if we're able to to cut this thing out, then we should. But that we do also have options for people that may not be surgical candidates up front. Now, you know, you mentioned how we have the option of doing concurrent chemo radiation and some sort of immunotherapy. I was just curious, and I, and I know that it's supposed to be a multidisciplinary discussion, but what sorts of things are being discussed and what sorts of things are being considered uh, that would lean somebody one way or the other? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So one of the things you mentioned, which which I left out in my uh, initial thing, was that anytime you do definitive concurrent chemo radiation, you have to follow that up with adjuvant immunotherapy. And we'll talk about why that's important and where the survival benefit came up, came in later on in this discussion the big thing that's happening in these tumor boards is, is we're basically saying, is this patient a good resection candidate in general? If the surgeon says, I don't think this patient's going to be a good resection candidate no matter what we do, then we proceed with definitive concurrent chemoradiation. The reason why that's so important is time is money in many of these cancers. We don't want to wait too long if this patient has many lymph nodes involved. And once we start something like a radiation approach, you don't want to take breaks. And Dr. Osmondson had talked about that in the last episode. There's been many, many trials and retrospective data that have shown that breaks between radiation is harmful for the patient and leads to worse in survival. So you want to have a good idea going into it up front. So if the surgeon says, hey, I don't think I'm going to resect this patient, then you know for sure. Let's go ahead with a definitive concurrent chemoradiation followed by immune therapy, which we'll talk about. Another situation where we would definitely go the definitive concurrent chemoradiation route is if you had two of the three criteria we listed for a no-surgery upfront approach. Remember, those are very large tumor greater than 7 centimeters, central lymph node involvement, and invasion in other structures. If you have two of the three of those, then in general, think definitive concurrent chemoradiation, meaning if I have an 8-centimeter tumor and single-digit central lymph node involvement, let's do definitive concurrent chemoradiation. If I have invasion of other structures and central lymph node involvement, we're generally thinking concurrent chemoradiation in that setting, setting in a definitive treatment. The other time that we would go definitive concurrent chemoradiation is if a patient had N3 disease. And remember, that just means that the patient had a contralateral lymph node or they had a supraclavicular lymph node. So that's another time where we would definitely do definitive concurrent chemoradiation. So to recap that, if you have N3 disease, contralateral or supraclav node, you're definitely doing definitive concurrent chemoradiation. If you have two of the three criteria that the fellow on call have given you, then you need definitive concurrent chemotherapy and radiation. And if the surgeon says, this patient is not going to be a resection candidate in general, then we're definitely going to do definitive concurrent chemoradiation. That helps immensely. And so again, these are in situations where surgery up front is not feasible. And then we also talked a little bit about the idea of doing an induction regimen. So if I'm understanding this term correctly, then Vivek, this is something that you're giving to the patient to hopefully make them a better surgical candidate, correct? It's not necessarily that we're trying to make the surgery more feasible. It's more that we're trying to accomplish good systemic disease control and local disease control prior to a large surgical resection. And this makes sense, right? So when we think about the no surgery upfront criteria that we gave you from the fellow on call, that's not saying that the surgeon thinks that, well, right now I cannot resect this patient. 
the surgeon still thinks, okay, I could probably achieve at this point, if if there was no disease progression right now, I could achieve a complete surgical resection or an R0 resection. So why do we do this induction chemotherapy regimen or induction chemoradiation then? Well, let's think about this. If you have a tumor greater than 7 centimeters, a central single-digit station lymph node involvement, or invasion into other structures, it's likely that you already have systemic microscopic metastatic disease floating around. And let's say that we did a surgery up front in, in the upfront scenario. Not every patient's going to be able to get to adjuvant chemotherapy. Why? Because of postoperative complications, deconditioning. Often these require much more difficult, larger operations. So we give the chemotherapy up front so that they for sure can get good systemic therapy prior to their surgical resection to eradicate any microscopic metastatic disease. And when we really think about this, this, we looked at this in trials and found that if you look at patients who get a neoadjuvant or induction chemotherapy approach, about 90% of them complete it. If you look at it in the adjuvant setting, we're looking at more like 60%. So you're really getting more chemotherapy into patients with the idea of getting good systemic disease control. Point number two, local disease control. Let's imagine that we don't have good local disease control. The issue there is that if we had this tumor that's invading into another structure or very large or having lymph node involvement and we left something behind, by the time we realize that we left something behind and could do something after the surgery, that patient likely has worsening microscopic metastatic disease and will develop distant metastatic disease down the line. So that's a big problem, right? And, and a good example of this is the superior sulcus tumor or the pancos tumor. Medical school, we learned that this caused Horner syndrome, that classic syndrome that we learned, whether you know whatever textbook, textbook that you were reading. But the big thing here is those patients get an induction chemotherapy plus radiation approach. And the reason for this makes a lot of sense to me. In that area, you have the subclavian vessels, you have the vertebral bodies. And let's say that we put that patient through a large operation and there was some disease left over, they're certainly going to have metastatic disease and they're certainly going to have a very poor overall survival if we don't get good local control prior to the surgical resection. So that's really the goal of these induction regimens. No matter which induction regimen you do, it's to make sure that you have good systemic disease control and local disease control prior to a surgical resection so that these patients don't develop metastatic disease down the line and that you get rid of whatever is there and so that they can definitely get some form of chemotherapy in them because remember, in the adjuvant setting, not all patients are going to complete chemotherapy. So, you know, going back to our case, our patient, he does only have one of those of those risk factors or those features of his case that would prevent him from getting upfront surgery. He only has the, the central lymph nodes involved. Let's say we're going to plan to have induction chemotherapy with him, induction chemoradiation. You have a lot of options in terms of what you can choose, but remember that by and large, this is chemotherapy that's intending to make the radiation work better. The radiation is still doing a lot of the heavy lifting. That said, the same principles that we discussed in our last episode before our little radiation interlude apply. Uh, you want platinum involved. So all of these regimens have a platinum component. And then another drug that has been studied to, to work well in this setting. Our most common regimens are going to be carboplatin and paclitaxel weekly. Another regimen is cisplatin and etoposide, cisplatin and pemetrexid, and then cisplatin and gemcitabine. So those are really the four most common bundles that you'll see, or, or uh, platinum doublets, as we call them, 
that you'll see given with radiation in this induction setting. And the other thing I want to add is that these are the same chemotherapy regimens that you would use if you were doing neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone. And this is really why we're not going to talk. It's not like the last episode that we have where we said we have the waste meta-analysis, and that showed us why we need to do cisplatin-based chemotherapy regimens. In the neoadjuvant space, it's actually very similar in that in the in that lace pooled analysis, we said there was about a five percent difference in overall survival at five years. It's the same thing with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. You're looking at about the same difference in survival, about five percent, if you just did neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone. And it's exactly the regimens that Dan was saying. So platinum agent plus something else. And the way I for me, because I'm a, I'm a very simple person, I remember two simple things in my head. And that is if I'm adding radiation to it, I'm going to think either carbotaxol weekly, which is preferred by our institution at Rouleau University Medical Center, or cisplatin plus etoposide with concurrent radiation, because we also use that for small cell lung cancer. So in my simple head, those are two easier regimens that I stick together with the concurrent chemotherapy. Otherwise, what we talked about last week holds true in the adjuvant setting, those regimens are the same thing you would do in the in this induction setting, whether it's with radiation or chemotherapy alone. And remember, we talked about cisplatin plus pemetrexid for adenocarcinoma, for example. So just go back to that episode to, to listen to exactly what we said, and the same thing applies here. Vivek, I, I appreciate you kind of simplifying that for sure, and that definitely helps to clarify things and kind of something just store away in my back pocket. But just for my knowledge, then, are there any other major differences in like overall survival between any of these regimens, you know, things that we should consider when we pick one over the other? Yeah, it's a great question. And what's really interesting is if you read something like the NCCN guidelines, it pulled a bunch of institutions and says, what do you do for your induction approach? Do you do chemotherapy alone or you do concurrent chemotherapy with radiation? And it's almost like a 50-50 split. So as you can see, this is there's a you know no definite an- definite right answer here, and there's no definite trial data showing a right answer. What we do know is that there was one really demonstrative trial that was done in a German cooperative group, and basically what they did was they they designed their trial to ask, what if we did concurrent chemotherapy radiation induction versus just chemotherapy induction, and there was no difference in overall survival, and that's the punchline of that. It was pretty interesting. There was, interestingly, a response rate with chemotherapy radiations about 60-ish percent, 60 to 70-ish percent. So you're kind of flipping a coin, maybe getting a little better than a coin flip chance of a response. And there was more mediastinal lymph node downstaging in that study if you did the concurrent chemoradiation as opposed to just chemotherapy. So you're getting better local responses, it seems, with chemotherapy plus radiation, which makes sense logically. But it panned out that overall survival-wise, there was no difference. So it's institution-dependent on whether an institution will prefer a concurrent approach or just chemotherapy alone. So Vivek, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, I don't mean to throw a wrench uh, into the, the discussion here, but to my recollection, you know, earlier this year or like at some point in the last academic year, there was a, another major study that had come out, I believe, in the New England Journal that had discussed the role of chemotherapy and also immunotherapy prior to surgery 
in lung cancer. And I, you know, I remember a flurry of emails and, and stuff about this, about how practice changing it was going to be. And so I was hoping maybe you can talk a little bit about this. And quite frankly, I'm confused as to how this fits into the overall picture here now. Yep, that's a good question. So I, I basically just outlined what we had before this most recent trial. And it's important to understand this because there's no definite consensus on how to incorporate the induction approach with chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. So what the trial Ronick was referring to, and I recommend that everybody reads this trial who's listening to this show, it's called Checkmate 816. And what that trial did was it looked at a platinum doublet induction chemotherapy with nivolumab, which is one of the immune therapies, one of the PD-1 inhibitor drugs, versus chemotherapy alone. And the idea here was, would people get better responses and better control if we gave them a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy? Because we knew that patients who got immunotherapy after something like definitive chemoradiation or in the metastatic setting had good response rates. So the idea was, can we push this sooner? And will we prevent patients from getting to a metastatic setting? Because remember, chemotherapy alone, we're talking a 5% difference. So we wanted to try to do better and improve that. And that's what this trial was trying to do. It was powered really to look at just pathologic complete response. And what it did was it actually found that patients who got this combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy in an induction approach had about a 20% complete response pathologically, meaning the surgeon then went to cut it out after their induction approach and found that there was no tumor left over when they went to surgery, that all of it was gone because of this induction regimen. And so that really led people to wonder, could we do this instead of incorporating something like radiation? So you'll see now that in many of these multidisciplinary tumor boards that we're still trying to figure out how to incorporate this, but it's likely that maybe a patient with a central lymph node like this patient we just described, we consider doing a neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy approach there are lots of nuances to that, but that's also added into our to our mix. And, and I just consider that, again, an induction regimen, right? You're, whether you do chemotherapy alone, chemotherapy plus immune therapy, or concurrent chemoradiation as an induction approach, those are all options. The field is evolving, and we're likely to see more of this chemo-immunotherapy induction approach due to this trial that showed high rates of pathologic complete response, which does suggest maybe we can downstage these tumors, maybe we can eradicate microscopic metastatic disease better than what we did before with our chemotherapy alone or the concurrent chemoradiation. Gosh. That was awesome. Yeah, that was that was really great. And I, my goodness, it, the field is definitely exploding as we see over and over and over. And, you know, kind of moving forward, though, so Let's, in our case, you know, our, our patient was being discussed as having um, induction chemotherapy. After that's over, are they like a definite go into surgery or, or do we have to kind of reevaluate the situation? So you always need to check how well it worked before you just take them straight to surgery. After somebody finishes one of these induction regimens, you have to do a restaging workup to see, you know, are they in fact a better candidate for surgery than they were before you start it. So if there's any progression of the disease, then you, you kind of hold off. You say, no surgery for you. You have to finish up a definitive round of, of chemoradiation. If there is response or a stable disease even, 
then you can go ahead and, and go on to surgery, assuming the surgeons agree that that's a good idea. Ultimately, it's their call. They're the ones who actually are doing the procedure. So you have to get their opinion on, on how the imaging looks. But um, those are the general principles. Okay, great. So in this case, our patient was able to go ahead and get his surgery. So what now? Do we just watch him, discharge him from our clinic? Like what happens then? Well, in these cases, typically after the patient undergoes a surgery, if they had an induction approach, the goal is to get an R0 resection or a complete resection. And if that's the case, then the patient's done. No more consolidative therapy, no more chemotherapy, no more radiation. Let's take the scenario where a patient actually has residual disease left over. They don't achieve that R0 resection. In those cases, typically what we're looking at is either a re-resection or commonly a radiation boost to the area if they had gotten radiation before or just a course of radiation in general if they just got the induction chemotherapy approach. So in general, these what we're looking at is did the patient achieve a complete resection? And if not, they're going to get some form of radiation. And that's generally what we're looking at. There could be a scenario I could see where a patient then undergoes a chemo radiation approach. But again, these are all made in tumor board discussions. But if I was going to remember one thing, I'd remember if there's not a complete resection or an R0 resection, we're looking at some form of radiation postoperatively. Otherwise, we just watch the patient with surveillance. All right. And so, you know, before we wrap this episode up, let's say for the sake of argument that our patient had a 4L lymph node instead of a 4R lymph node. So this is contralateral mediastinal nodal disease. Uh, that makes him an N3. And unfortunately, that is disqualifying for induction chemotherapy by and large. So let's assume this patient was tracked for definitive chemoradiation. How does that change what we're going to do? So the big thing here is to remember, again, what the criteria are for getting definitive chemoradiation. If you have two of the three no surgery up front, or you have a contralateral lymph node or a supraclavicular lymph node, then you will definitely get definitive chemoradiation. And in this case, we had a patient with a contralateral lymph node, so they're going to get definitive chemoradiation to try to cure their lung cancer. And the regimens that are used are the same as what we said before. And the key thing here, compared to induction chemoradiation, you're having a longer course of therapy. So in this concurrent setting, you're looking at a total of 60 grays with two grays in each fraction. And we talked about that with Dr. Osmondson in a previous episode. So that means if you're thinking about you're radiating only on weekdays, so five days a week, trying to get a total of 60 grays, that's 30 days of radiation which takes you to about six weeks of chemoradiation therapy. And so that's what I would expect for this patient. Another thing is you might be wondering, why not do sequential? Why not give chemotherapy followed by radiation? And we've studied that and found that clearly concurrent chemoradiation is the way to go. And then Vivek, we've been talking a lot about immune therapy as well. And so is there any role for immunotherapy to be given in, the, uh, in a situation like this with N3 disease? Absolutely. And this is something that every HEMOC fellow needs to know, and they should read this trial. It's called the Pacific Trial. And what they did here was they said, well, let's say we took patients who needed this definitive chemoradiation. And after they completed at least two cycles of chemoradiation, so really after they completed a fair number of, of weeks of chemotherapy and radiation, did they either have stable disease or a response. And in those patients who had either stable disease or a response, they randomized them to get immunotherapy or placebo. 
And the idea here was, well, what if we gave immunotherapy? Could we consolidate their response? Could we get deep in their response and make them a higher chance of a cure by giving them immunotherapy earlier and not letting them get metastatic? And what they found it was that it worked, that these patients did much better. And it's not that we have 100% cure rates when we're giving this. And I think that's important to know. Is It's really important to know that we're not perfect. But at 18 months, the progression-free survival was 44% in the immunotherapy arm versus about 20% in the placebo arm. And then we found a five-year overall survival benefit where about a little over 40% of the patients are still alive after they got immune therapy compared to a little over 30%. So about a 10% difference in overall survival at five years. And remember, we kept on talking about if you, if you do adjuvant chemotherapy or that induction or neoadjuvant approach, we're looking at a 5% difference in overall survival. Here, we landed on a 10% difference, which was big in the field of lung cancer. So anybody who gets definitive chemoradiation Unless they have any disqualifying contraindications, they're going to get consolidative immunotherapy. And in this case, we used a drug called Dervalumab. That's really interesting. And, and again, it's continuing to highlight the important role that immunotherapy really does play in the management of, of lung cancer. And as you guys have been alluding to, that's, it seems like we're moving, uh, we continue to move more and more in that direction of how to incorporate different types of IO uh, into our management approach, which is, which is really fascinating. I mean, in just this discussion, you can, we can see just how much the field is kind of expanding and becoming more complicated on a daily basis. So it seems. Yeah. Non-small cell lung cancer at this point is such a wild field. There are so many new therapies that are being approved. And one big thing I want to highlight. We now have immune therapy in the metastatic setting as consolidative therapy for anybody who gets definitive chemoradiation, and now as an option as an induction regimen. And I think the important thing to know is that let's say that we gave immune therapy in the induction regimen and we had that higher pathologic complete response, 20% versus single digits in the chemotherapy alone. Is that going to translate into overall survival? And will those patients later on actually respond to immune therapy? And that's really the unanswered questions. All right, guys. Well, I think that's all the questions that I have about the management of early stage uh, non-small cell lung cancer. Any final thoughts that you guys have? Yeah, you know, just to, to really quickly recap, one of the key things I want people to take away is that if, the tu- if somebody has a tumor that's invading other structures in the chest, has central lymph node involvement, or is over seven centimeters, then upfront surgery is pretty much off the table. And we're looking at either definitive chemoradiation or induction chemotherapy. That's a huge decision point. I think it's just important for people to remember. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not making any of these decisions in a vacuum. This is a multidisciplinary conversation. And, uh, and we really wanted to just to give you the pearls and why there are so many different options and that there's no right answer here, that even in the induction approach, there's no difference in overall survival when you're looking at chemotherapy versus concurrent chemotherapy and radiation. So just wanted to highlight those points. Yeah, huge. All right, guys. Well, um, I think that wraps up another great episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.